Hey, hey, glad you made it. I love that song. Uh, it's seeing our lives through Christ. It's accepting the call to join Jesus. It's unreservedly following him. I mean, that's where we begin to see clearly now. That's where the power resides. It's in Christ Jesus. And the government will be upon his shoulders. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Do you find comfort in knowing that there is a kingdom out there that is above corruption, full of grace and truth, that can't be shaken, that will last forever? <laughs> Me too. Okay, so we start a new series today, taking specific notice of what Jesus said and did in the Gospel of John. What words came out of Jesus' mouth? What action backed up those words? Now, remember our premise that the power resides in Christ Jesus. It comes from this. Anybody that can predict his death, burial, and resurrection and pull it off has got the power. Whoever can do that holds the power. He's got it. So whatever comes out of his mouth and produces results, uh, that's what we call word power. And before John writes down anything, he wants any possible ambiguity about who that word exactly is cleared up. So he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word, the word was Jesus. Jesus, who was with God in the beginning of the creation of the universe, and Jesus, who is one with God and has always been. And this Jesus became a human being 2,000 years ago, and we celebrate his birth every year. He became real, flesh and blood, physical, human being. The Word became flesh. Dr. Rachel Eckhart has what she calls an age man suit. She puts it on her young medical students to try to help them feel a little bit more with their elderly people. The suit has ear protectors that stifle hearing. It has this yellowish visor that blurs eyesight and makes it hard to distinguish between colors. It has uh, knee and elbow pads which stiffen and limit joint mobility. And a Kevlar style uh, vest which presses in uncomfortably against the chest. And then finally, padded gloves to limit hand capabilities and also the sense of touch. It's a custom-made suit to simulate the physical consequences of aging. And when she straps her students in, she says, welcome to old age. <laughs> she says she wants to turn these young, energetic, hopeful doctors into slow, creaking beings in an effect to bridge the gap between them 
and their geriatric patients. Now, there is something very similar to that and what God the Creator did in sending a part of Himself in the form of His Son to become one of us. That the Word became flesh is now relatable to us, identifiable to us, connected to us, sympathetic to us. Our Father couldn't stand the thought of being away from us, of being distant from us. So, he bridged the gap. The Word became flesh. Mm. Now, later on in this first chapter of John, he is going to write about John the Baptist, who was with two of his students, two of his disciples, and they were in a setting where Jesus unexpectedly walked by. And John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God. And John, as he's recording this, said that right after he said that, the two students that were following John the Baptist stopped and began immediately following Jesus. And the text picks up in verse 38. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and you'll see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which translated as Peter, which means rock. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one who Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Okay, so the word was Jesus and the word became flesh. And as soon as the word became flesh, the word was followed. Jesus found Andrew, and the next day Andrew found brother Peter, and they followed the word. The following day, Jesus found Philip, who immediately found Nathanael, and they also followed the word. You see, not only did this word become real flesh and blood, it was also powerfully influential. Thus, the following. At Jesus' first meeting with Peter, he renames him the rock, now, Peter was many things, but one thing he wasn't was a rock. In those early years with Jesus, Peter was unstable. He was impulsive, but he would become a pillar in the early church. You see, Jesus named him not for what he was, but for who he would become. I like that. Do you think that new name that came from Jesus was something that was influential over Peter's life? Oh, you know it. And what about the first time encounter with Nathaniel? It took him totally by surprise. Philip tells his friend Nathaniel that the prophesied one is here. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nazareth had a, a pitiful reputation as a town. It was a small community covered in poverty, nothing noteworthy to mention. So when Nathaniel heard where Jesus was from, why, he just verbalized the prejudice that already existed about that place. In fact, he just said it, Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? But here is where the influence of Jesus is, again, unpredictable. 
Jesus doesn't rebuke Nathanael for his hating. Jesus doesn't scold Nathanael for his obvious bias against a group of people. I mean, think about it. What Jesus could have said right after Nathanael said those ugly things about Jesus' hometown, or at least implied it, Jesus could have said, you don't think anything good can come from Nazareth? Hmm. I want you to know that the only prayer you have will be through the goodness of someone from Nazareth. I I mean, Jesus could have said that. He didn't. Look what he said. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. You see, right after Nathanael disses Jesus and his stomping grounds, (laughs) Jesus responds, by complimenting Nathaniel, saying something good about his character. And then Jesus reveals knowledge of some private moment. I mean, because right after Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. And he immediately begins worshiping him as the son of God and the king of God's people. Do you think that little exchange had some influence over Nathaniel to want to follow closely? You see, the word was Jesus, and the word became flesh, and the word was followed, and then we find out that the word had feelings. Early on in Jesus' ministry, he and his disciples, along with Jesus' family, were all invited to a wedding celebration. It was the groom's responsibility to provide the food and the wine for everyone, and it would be embarrassing, even shameful, if either of those things ran out. Well, somehow Mary, Jesus' mother, found out that the wine was gone. So she turned immediately to Jesus. Pick up the text in chapter 2, verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. I'm not really sure we can do anything but make conjectures. Well, for 30 years, where has Jesus been? He's he's been at home. He doesn't start his ministry until he's 30. So day in, day out, for the last three decades, it's been Jesus and his mother Mary. The bond that they shared, it had to have been extraordinary. And even though Jesus' initial response to his mother seems reluctant, Mary knew her son well enough to know that, you know, he's really the only one you go to when you've got a, when you've got a problem. She somehow knew he'd, he would fix it. So Jesus has the servants fill six jars, six large jars that were used to hold the water that would be used in the ceremonial cleansing, the washing of the feet, and some of that held about 25 gallons each. He has them fill them to the brim, and then he asks someone to draw some of that water out and take it to the wedding host who tastes it, not knowing where it came from. If he did, he probably wouldn't even have drank it to begin with, but he tasted it, and he said it's the best wine he's had all night. Crisis averted. 
Think about this, though. Jesus saw the faith of his mother. He felt the impending shame on the groom and his family. And, and Jesus' compassion, it, it just took over. The, the word had feelings. And then John, 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 who was not known for following a chronological order of the events in Jesus' life, no. He takes an event that happens near the end of Jesus' ministry, and he plugs it in right here, a shocking, unforeseen moment. It was Passover, and hundreds of thousands of people came to Jerusalem. Scholars have guessed that it would have been at least 200,000, probably upwards of a million people. So they all come to Jerusalem. Look what this, the text says. Jesus went in the temple courts. He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle and all. He, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, y'all go with me here for a second because I, I don't know if the movies that I've watched of Jesus clearing the temple have, have etched something in my mind, but as I thought more about this, you know, this, this is supposed to be servicing upwards of a million people. I, I guess I just always kind of thought it was just uh, a couple of cows and a sheep or two and, and then maybe one or two, three at the most, little vending tables where money was exchanged. But you all, if this is, is this, if this is servicing this multitude, I mean, think of the livestock that they would have to have on hand. I mean, a sale barn is a better picture for you to have in mind, I think. I mean, all of these cows and all of these sheep and all, vendors, one lined up after another. I mean, I think what Jesus did is he got, he must have caused a, a a stampede of sorts, just this enormous ruckus. But keep going with me. Who, who was there? Well, you, you would definitely have the, the, the Roman military. They, they would be present. You would have the temple guards. In other places in the Bible, it talks about that there were, there were guards especially appointed just to the temple area. The religious elites, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, they would have their own armed soldiers. Disruptions were prepared for before Passover would ever begin. I mean, they've been doing this for thousands of years. The police would, would know how to manage the crowd to avoid escalation. The Jewish leadership, especially in the temple and surrounding area, would, would be poised and ready to immediately res respond to any challenge to their authority or disturbance that would take away from this orderly week of Passover feast. And yet, no one, no one even dared to approach this one man who by himself, his disciples didn't help him clear the temple, it's Jesus alone. This one man who, who got everybody out and all the livestock. And I guess it just kind of hit me. Why? I mean, why did no one restrain him? Why did no one intervene? Why did no one stop him? 
And that's what John is showing us. Because the word was formidable, impressively powerful and capable. Why did no one restrain or intervene? John wants his readers to know the simple truth. No one restrained or intervened because they couldn't. No one can stop the word. The word has never been restrained. It's never been overpowered. The word has never been conquered. The government of his everlasting, unshakable kingdom rests on his unchallenged and unbeaten shoulders. And that is where the citizenship lies for those who are in Christ Jesus. And John is giving us a word picture of a, of a most powerful word. Go back even before this time when the angel Gabriel visited young Mary, told her that she had found favor with the Lord and she was going to have a baby. And Mary's humble response was, how can this happen since I'm still a virgin? And the angel Gabriel's answer is generally translated, no word from God will ever fail. That's a good translation that's accurate. These Greek words used here are very descriptive. The word-for-word -word translation from the Greek is, no word from God is without power. In fact, that Greek word used to translate without power is adunatesai. It has a little awe in front of it to, say, to take it to the negative. Adunatesai is a form of dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite. Ah, dunatesai, without power. No word from God is without power. This word became flesh and started a following that continues to today. This word that has feelings of compassion has received all power and authority. This word, this word is Jesus who spoke galaxies into existence, who spoke breath into all creatures. And this word speaks disappearance to all of our sin and failure. This word, this word deserves our worship. 